This is Your Kick-Ass Life podcast, episode number R6 with guest Jean McCarthy. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey, ass kickers. Welcome to another episode of the recovery series of the podcast and welcome back. Welcome back in two ways because I took a couple of weeks off in December from my regular podcasts over the holidays and I took an even bigger break from the recovery series. As many of you know, my father passed away kind of in the middle of doing that series. And so I so appreciate all of your patience as I get my bearings back, as I get back up to speed here. And here we are in the new year. And I am so very excited to have you back. And especially on this particular part of the podcast, the special edition, talking all about recovery. So happy new year. And before we get into this week's episode with a very special guest, I wanted to make a quick announcement. So I know many of you listen to the podcast regularly, and maybe you also have my book, and you might be wondering what the next step is for you. And really, I think it's great that you listen to podcasts. You probably don't just listen to mine. You have maybe a library of them. You probably also have a library of self-help books that you read and love them. And I think that that's all great. But if you're ready to take bigger action. If you think that you're at a place where you need a little bit more, you need more support, you need more tools and just really guidance and a community, I have that. And it's called Your Kick-Ass Masterclass. The website, if you want to just go ahead and read about it, it's at kickassmasterclass.com. I'm going to tell you about it here. This is really great for any woman who struggles with negative self-talk. You could be at the point where you're really struggling in it, where you hear it all the time, or maybe just around certain areas of your life, like your body or your relationships. It's for anyone who struggles in the area of control, perfectionism, people-pleasing, numbing, maybe self-sabotage gets up in there every once in a while, comparing how you are, how you measure up to other women, any of those types of behaviors this class is going to be perfect for you because we do a few really important things and I teach you some really important tools in there to be able to, when you find yourself engaging in those behaviors, learn another way. So it's not about not doing those behaviors at all anymore. I still do them every once in a while. But one of the, this is just one of the big things that we learn in that class is your triggers. Because again, shit's still going to hit the fan and you're going to get triggered. And instead of just falling into that trigger and that rabbit hole and going into those behaviors that I just mentioned, there's another way, another way that lines up with who you want to be. And that's really what this is all about, right? That's why you listen to this podcast. That's why you read my book. It's because you want to be the best version of yourself. You want to be proud of the woman that you see in the mirror every day. And that's what your kick-ass masterclass is all about. It is nine weeks long. It is all online. You do not have to leave the comfort of your own home. There are live calls, but they are all recorded. So if you cannot make the calls, the recording will be sent to you. There is a private Facebook group that we're all a cozy part of, and it's a community where I am in there. I'm actually there answering your questions and guiding you through and celebrating with you and It is really phenomenal what can happen when a group of women come together with the same goal in mind. I've seen it happen over and over again, and I would love for you to join us. Kickassmasterclass.com is the website. And there are some pretty awesome bonuses that you get for signing up. Again, this is very, very similar to the work that I do one-on-one privately with clients. So if you've seen that and you've been interested in it, but it's the financial commitment is too much of a stretch, this class is a fraction of the price. I wanted to have something out there that people could afford who can do this work because it's really, really important. And there's a payment plan too. So I would love for you to join us. Kickassmasterclass.com. I will see you there. And let's get on with the show. So today I have Jean McCarthy. Let me tell you a little bit about Jean. Jean McCarthy 
thought she had it all figured out, go 100 miles an hour all day as a mom and business owner, then drink wine before bed to quickly de-stress and fall asleep. She had no idea that this perfect equilibrium would evolve into addiction over the course of a decade. Now, five years sober, Jean writes about her experiences as a person in recovery at unpickledblog.com and holds space for others to share their stories on the Bubble Hour podcast. So without further ado, here is Jean. Hey there, Jean McCarthy. Thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. I am so excited to talk to you. I, I know that we've kind of ran in the same circles of recovery for years now and I was on your podcast on the Bubble Hour, and I am just really, really grateful to have these conversations on such a very, very important topic. And I've been, to be totally honest, I knew of your blog, but I had never like sat down and put my eyeballs on it and read some of your posts. And I got sucked in for hours last <laughs> week. So for anyone out there who's listening, who's, you know, kind of maybe surfing the net at the same time that they're listening to this, you are at, is it theunpickledblog.com or... Unpickled blog. Unpickledblog.com. Yes. It's so fantastic. And I'm just, I'm so excited to jump in. And so let's start as we always start with our guests on this topic is please tell us your story and what led you to sobriety and a life of recovery. Okay. Well, thank you. And thanks for your kind words about my blog because I started it thinking, you know, I was just going to use it as an accountability tool. I would, <laughs> I would be fixed in a few months. Right. No one would really see it. And then I would have some material that maybe I could write a, a pitch an article to a magazine or, you know, maybe like write a little book or something. Like you know. Digest or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and so here it is, you know, gosh, it's almost six years later. Mm-hmm. And I'm still writing and still learning. So obviously the whole process has exceeded my expectations. What began as a tool to fix me, you know, has become kind of a community and a place of dialogue and place of healing. So Mm -hmm. that's really wonderful. So going back to what started all of this was the absolute opposite. You know, what became a conversation and a public dialogue started with a whole lot of secrets and a whole lot of secret shame and secret loathing. And, you know, there was two versions of me. There was what I showed the world, which was looked pretty good. You know, Mm -hmm. I knew how to conduct myself. I had taken a little modeling class as a teenager and, you know, self-improvement. And I learned how to speak and I learned how to be poised and how to dress. And that was very useful information for a boy, crazy, self-doubting, codependent <laughs> <laughs> yep. in training little girl. And I was also kind of an old soul as a young kid. So I would say from a very young age, I had this just this personality setup of feeling very different on the inside than I looked on the outside. Like I remember being nine years old and getting my school picture taken and trying to look sophisticated, you know, mm-hmm. and like wearing my mother's brooch, you know, and like just wanting to be seen as something more. It never occurred to me in any capacity that who I was was adequate. You know, that's, uh, I don't ever remember feeling that way. I always remember feeling like I had to pony up, you know, and put on a good show. But that didn't really show up as an alcohol problem for a long time. I was pretty surprised. You know, I built a really good life, a good career, married a guy that I, you know, met as a teenager. And we've been married now 20, almost 28 years. And then we have three grown children and it was successful business. Like everything was good. And so when I, you know, in my 30s, I knew something was up with my drinking. I knew I couldn't control it. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you a little bit more about yeah, what that was like. Say, tell us more about that. Yeah. So I kind of knew that it had me, but I wasn't worried about it because it wasn't bad, you mm-hmm. know? So I knew I couldn't really go without that nightly glass of wine. And I knew I had some anxiety when I couldn't get it when I wanted it. So the knowledge was there, but I still had this idea, like many people, of what addiction looked like and what, you know, and that somehow 
having success in other areas of my life precluded me from addiction. Like it canceled it out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to stop you for just a quick second and tell you a funny story. So when you said that part about like, I had an idea of what addiction looked like, did you ever happen to see that episode of Oprah? So I'm dating myself. So this was back when Oprah had her show at 4 PM every, every day. And they did that segment on women alcoholics. Did you ever see that? And Ellie was on it. I probably did see it because I did watch Oprah like every day in the 90s, yes. but it didn't stick with me at that time. <laughs> it stuck with me. So for those of you listening, <laughs> Ellie Strong is a friend of ours who's big in recovery, who's the host of the Bubble Hour podcast, which we'll link to that up on the show notes. She's fantastic. But she was on there and was newly sober, I believe. And one of the things that she did was... She was hiding bottles of Chardonnay around her house and she had one like in the washing machine, another one somewhere else in the laundry room in the back of her closet behind her trash can in the kitchen. And I distinctly remember thinking that is an alcoholic. (laughs) It is not me. And I was one. But it's interesting how we take on things that we see in the media that are so separate from ourselves and use that and, you know, use it as just fodder for that we are not in trouble, that we are not, you know, we are not needing help. Oh, totally. And it, like, again, it's that duplicity because to ourselves, we think we're comparing and contrasting, you know, mm-hmm. we think we're in charge of that. I'm using that as my guideline or my tool and I know I'm okay. So we Here's sort of feel like, mm-hmm. right. But what's actually happening, I believe is another part of our brain. The part that's addicted is using that manipulatively on some level to keep us drinking. I agree. So to me, everything Almost everything, I don't know, at this point, it looks very much to me this way anyway, that everything I'm learning about my addiction and my recovery is that, is that smoke and mirrors, that two-sided, you know, the two sides of everything. I thought it was this way, but it was the complete opposite, you know? Mm-hmm. I thought I looked really good on the outside. I thought I had it all together, but I didn't acknowledge how bad I felt on the inside, you know? Mm-hmm. And then having someone else give you a nice foil like that of saying, this is what addiction looks like. And you can be like, yep, see, (laughs) not me. Mm -hmm. I'm fine. I'm fine. So how were you really feeling on the inside? Well, I'm a hard worker and I think by inclination and overachiever. And sometimes we talk about being high achiever. Like I think to the world, I looked like a high achiever because I worked really hard and I always reached for, you know, the stretch goal. Mm -hmm. But what I think The reason I call that overachieving was because I was never satisfied with what I got. Like, Mm -hmm. I thought this is going to justify me. This is going to prove that I'm okay. And then I'd achieve it and it would immediately not be enough, you know? So whether that was material things or weight loss or fitness or career goals or, you know, anything, I was just, I was an approval junkie. Yeah. Brene calls that like, I, she doesn't say the four P's, but it is the four P's. It's proving, pleasing, perfecting, and performing. hundred percent, hundred percent. And, you know, I actually heard that I heard you say this, I think when you were on the bubble hour, or maybe it was on your podcast that if ship leaves port a little off course, you know, it ends up on the wrong continent. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what happened. I set out with good intentions, but my internal like self doubt and kind of self loathing was pulling me off course. And so what started out as sort of being, you know, poised and polished and professional to carry on with all the P's did morph into people pleasing and perfectionism. And the two things are close, but not the same. Mm -hmm. It's really self-destructive. I thought I was a considerate person. I'm just very considerate. I'm always (laughs) thinking about other people. (laughs) But, you know, we can call BS on that because what, you know, what I was, was it's manipulative. If you're a people pleaser, you're trying to make people like you and you're never sure they do. You're trying to make them do what you want, but then you know, you made them do it. So then you don't feel very good. Right. (laughs) When you get what you want. I have a colleague that says that people pleasers are liars because they would rather lie about their own feelings than say no and risk the things that go along with that. Well, I guess... I could challenge that a little bit by saying, I didn't know what I thought. Right. I didn't know what I wanted. It's still like, I'm 49 years old and I'm just now starting to think before I answer because what I wanted was what the people around me wanted. I want you to like me. So I want what you want. What do you want? Mm -hmm. What I want doesn't matter in this equation. I didn't even think about it or I dismiss it as soon as an alternative came up. So if you said, what do you want to do for lunch? 
and I'm thinking that I want pizza, but I'm wanting to know what you want so that I don't risk you thinking I'm bad for wanting that, you know? Got it. So it's only now that I feel safe. You know, even in my marriage, like, you know, if my husband wants to go do something and now I'm like, okay, I got to say this, you know, honey, I have to tell you, I really don't want to go to the hardware store. He's like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) You're like agonizing over it. Because he always does what he, you know, he has no problem telling me he doesn't want to come walk the dog with me. He has no problem considering his wants and needs. So, and I used to really resent that, you know, we want other people to people please like we do. Right. Anyway. I don't know what that feels like. Just that whole putting everybody else's feelings before your own. I came to that huge realization that I do that in every partnership I've ever been in with men. And I started with my father. Like I, my feelings don't matter as much as yours. And I think, I mean, I could get into patriarchy and all that, like crazy, you know, rants, (laughs) but I won't. But I think that it's common for a lot of women that we grow up in that kind of just culturally. And then we become a certain age, you know, typically I think around our age and we realize that just I I grew up on a farm. I live in Alberta and I spent my first like decade as a farm kid. And my early memories of being on the farm, you know, it was my dad and we had a couple exchange guys that would come from other countries in the summer and live there and work. And at mealtime, always the rule was the men eat first and let the men dish up first, my mom would say. And I have it's all girls in my family. So as three little girls, we'd hang back and let the men fill their plates and then we could go. And that was just, I mean, it was out of respect because they were out working hard in the fields, but it mm-hmm. set up. It's subtle you know, messages like that. Yeah, yeah. Message received, message received. Mm-hmm. So it's funny. We're, I feel like we're sort of swirling the drain here because, you know, you asked me to tell you about my alcoholism and addiction to alcohol. And here I'm talking about all these other things, but I didn't know it at the time, but they all feed into it, right? Mm -hmm. It all set the stage. And at the time when I quit, I sort of felt I had created this life that I thought was perfect, except for this one thing. Like, I miss it. Like, I got to just figure out this alcohol thing and then I'll be perfect. So it's like you're doing a puzzle and there's just one piece left Mm -hmm. and you're trying, but the piece you have left doesn't fit the whole. Mm -hmm. And you're like, how did this happen? So you can't just like you know, carve a new piece. You've got to take the whole thing apart and figure out where you put it together wrong, where you jammed something in that didn't fit. Yeah. That's and a great so, metaphor. So yeah. So you said that, like, you, what did you try to do first to make it work? Did you immediately like quit <laughs> or did you try all the things first? <laughs> well, yeah, first I tried. Well, first of all, let me tell you my pattern was I was very much someone who was working the second, I drank for the second shift as Ann Delta Johnson calls it, which is that, you know, I would work all day, work really hard, come home. And then, so like a lot of women, you know, we work an eight hour day, you come home and then you've got another eight hour day of what you do at home, right? Mm -hmm. Cooking dinner, getting the kids homework, schoolwork, sports, doing the laundry. So you come home at eight and you're going, going, going until midnight. And it wasn't that I didn't like that, but I would definitely say that became the pivot point for my day where I initially just began drinking before bed so that I would fall asleep because I had so much to do every day. But what it morphed into over the course of a decade was that I was rushing home from work and I was drinking all evening, Mm -hmm. sipping all evening and just trying to time it perfectly so that I kind of passed out a nanosecond before my head hit the pillow Mm -hmm. because my greatest fear was lying in bed awake with my thoughts. I could stay busy all day long. I could be perfect and hardworking and successful all day long. But when I crawled into bed and was just alone and quiet, I knew it was all bullshit. And then it would start, you know, the guilt and the shame and the, and the replaying old thoughts and old scenes and old bad moments would just start replaying. And I desperately wanted to skip that and just get to sleep so I could get up and go, 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 go all day long. So that was the dynamic I set up for myself. And it worked quite well, I'm going to say, for a few years of working really hard all day, drinking a bit at night, falling asleep, getting up, going all day. 
And I think a lot of us get to that, like, oh, I've set up this perfect routine and this works. I finally mm-hmm. found it. And Groundhog Day <laughs> is okay. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, and maybe you throw some other behaviors in there that you don't see as related. Like maybe there's some binging and purging in there, or maybe there's some overspending while you're mm-hmm. drinking your wine of online shopping. Like maybe there's some other numbing behaviors that are happening in there, but we're not considering that, you know? Like no one sees it. It's not real. Right. But everyone can see this wine glass in my hand. So I have to find a way to make this okay. Mm -hmm. But drinking typically, regardless of your genetic predisposition, and there's alcoholism in my family. So I was a lucky genetic winner on that front. But even so, alcohol is addictive. So your use is going to escalate. I mean, it cannot stay the same with an addictive anything. So whether it's sugar or, you know, any substance that's messing with your pleasure wiring in your brain is going to start demanding more. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, over the course of a decade, that just became a management problem for me. I knew I didn't have much longer. I could see it was escalating and I couldn't keep it hidden much longer. And I was scared, really scared of that because I didn't want to lose all the good things that I'd built. So what did I try to do to quit? Oh my gosh. Okay. So I tried only drinking on the weekends. Uh huh. Impossible. Tried only drinking one drink a night. Impossible. Read that you should only have three drinking days a week and no more than seven alcoholic units, you know, five ounce glasses of wine in a week. Tried that. Impossible. Tried only drinking with meals. Impossible. So then that's when exhausting. I'm like, I, oh, I'm, I'm uh, like, you should see my face. I wish I could take a break. I'm like <laughs> cringing over here. Like, oh, <laughs> well, it just sounds like a lot to think about. You know what I mean? And I, I, I remember those days. I remember it was, I didn't go to quite that extent. I definitely tried the one glass a night. And I mean, it was like, I would get like a big gold glass. Like, I just <laughs> like, well, and it's ridiculous. Like I know that and, I, and I'm not joking when I say that, like I, I would get like one of those big, like fishbowl wine glasses. I had those I from Crate and Barrel. They were huge and I would fill the mother up. Like I'm like, okay, this is it. And it would be plenty. Like, oh, and then, <laughs> and then I, I would I, make sure. And I drank that on an empty stomach, you know? Yes. Right. God. And then not only that, but then I would just keep topping it up. Well, I didn't really fill it all the way up. So I'm going to, I'll just top it evaporated up in the last 20 minutes. Exactly. <laughs> and then, oh, a friend stopped by. I'm going to pour her a glass of wine. Well, I better top mine up. Yeah. And- well, there's only like a tiny little bit left in the bottle. I'll just. <laughs> <laughs> we must have had the same tape playing in our head. <laughs> So then I enlisted the help of my husband because I not only went on the website to see if I was, you know, I did the quizzes for myself. Mm -hmm. I really like one called rethinkingdrinking.org. Okay. We'll we'll link that up. Yeah. I have a link to it on my blog too. And it's a really good one because instead of saying, are you an alcoholic? It just says like, what category, you know, do you fall into? And so I put my pattern in there and was shocked that I was like in heavy drinking, high risk behavior. Mm -hmm. So then I put it in there like, well, what if I just put in the drinks that no one knows, like that the actual, no, how did I have it? I sort of had like, I would drink tequila in a coffee cup while Mm -hmm. I cooked. Mm -hmm. And so, well, what if I don't count that? Because maybe I could get... So you were were trying to calculate how many drinks you'd have to remove to get into the, like the lower level. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) So I couldn't, I couldn't make my drinking pattern fit anything but the high risk. (laughs) So then I thought, well, maybe the teamwork approach will work. So then I put my husband's presumed drinking patterns in there Mm -hmm. and I was pouring him drinks so that I to sort of justify my drinking. Mm-hmm. And of course he wasn't drinking as much as me because he wasn't home while I was having the tequila and the coffee cups. Oh, okay. but, mm-hmm. but I would still, you know, I knew I was pushing drinks on him to try and normalize my drinking. So, so then I put his pattern in there and he was in the high risk too, but I knew I was pretty sure he could quit. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to enlist him as an accountability buddy. So I show this to him and I'm like, listen, look at this. We're in the high risk drinking. So we got to do something about this. This is really bad. And he's like, oh my gosh, you're right. Okay. Let's only, we'll only drink. We have a ski cottage that we go to in the mountains. So he's like, okay, no more drinking at home. 
only on the weekends, just, you know, have wine with dinner and stuff at the ski hill. And I'm like, great. <laughs> so guess what? One of us can do that. And one of us can't. Oh, right. One of, one of you goes mad thinking about it. And the other one doesn't <laughs> even think about it. <laughs> so by Wednesday, I'm drinking again. Uh-huh. And he's not. And he's like, what are you doing? I thought we agreed we were going to only drink at the cabin. And I was like, oh, that's stupid. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I was going to say, like, if somebody asked me that question, I'd be like, oh, my God, I deserve this. Exactly. Like, and I, I just that's like I would have exactly lost. what I did, Andrea. I'd be like, oh, I know. But like, you know, one of our kids had a really bad report card or <laughs> Oh, my sister, you know, what irritated me today or, oh, something really great happened at work and I'm celebrating or like, there's always a reason if you want to look for a reason. So, or this was going to go bad in the fridge, you know, like Mm -hmm. just whatever. So I was starting to see, so all of this on fail over years. So when I, you know, the last time that I quit, you know, you could say like, yes, I quit drinking in 2011 and I haven't relapsed since then. But the truth is like, man, I had a lot of false starts before that because I just, I couldn't, absolutely couldn't moderate. Then I started to where I was hiding my drinking. I was drinking out of, I was buying wine in boxes and I was, that was really clever because I could put one in the fridge and hide one in the pantry. And then no one knew when I switched it out unless they were a fly on the wall in the kitchen when I was pulling. Okay. Listeners, if you do this, just know this is the sign. I pulled the plastic bag out of, you know, when you get down to the end Uh and I would kind of roll it up and then I would like suck on the spout to get all the wine out of it. The last drop. Yeah. So I was, you know, pretty classy together lady, unless you happen to see me sucking on a bag of wine at my kitchen sink. Well, maybe, uh, maybe then to, not to, so good. To, to almost match your story. I used to, <laughs> this was kind of towards the end. So I kind of did what you did with the, how you did the tequila in the coffee cup before your husband got home. So I would, I would actually get out a wine glass and drink wine before he came home. And then I would, and my husband doesn't drink just by choice. So I would put that dirty wine glass in the dishwasher and then get a new one out like an hour after he got home. Like, oh, I think I'm going to pour myself a drink. (laughs) Like I was just starting, but really I was already, you know, at least two glasses in. And then a few times I found myself as I would hear his truck pulling into the driveway, I would run to the refrigerator and open it up and grab the bottle of Pinot Grigio or Chardonnay from the fridge and chug it standing at the refrigerator door just to get like a few more ounces down before he came in because I knew I wasn't going to pour myself my quote unquote first glass for another 30 or 60 minutes. So like there was one, at one point I was like drinking it from the bottle, (laughs) standing at the open refrigerator door with my two toddlers there. And, you know, I'm like (laughs) hearing the garage door close and I'm thinking, like, I don't know if you did this. I have like these picture, there was these like moments that seem like frozen in time of, I don't think this is normal. Yeah. And it took me a long time to get there. Like I didn't start out chugging wine from the bottle. It took me a couple of years of solid consistent drinking to progress to that. Yeah, I get that. And you know what? Like, I think we should, I have to take a moment and just mention my husband because, okay, it took me years to stop drinking and years to accept that I needed to change. And then I think a lot of us, like we work so hard to hide what's really going on, just like you describe, right? You're just Mm -hmm. like desperate. And then they walk in the door. Hi, honey. And then when we spring on them that Hey, so I have to tell you something. Mm -hmm. I've quit drinking because I have this raging problem that you Mm -hmm. know nothing about. Right. And we expect their immediate support, you know? (laughs) And here it took us, like in my case and in many people's case, literally years Years. to accept that I had a problem, but I want your instantaneous, unquestioning support. Mm -hmm. And I have to just give my husband credit in that when I did that to him, he believed me. Because there was nothing on the outside that suggested he should believe me, mm-hmm. but he trusted me enough that if I was doing this, that there was a reason for it. They and, serious. Yeah. And that I really feel for women who don't get that kind of 
support right from the beginning. Now, I was very intent on nobody else needs to change a single thing. I just have this one puzzle piece that I have to hammer in. Mm -hmm. So everything else around me can stay exactly the same. You don't have to change, honey, but I'm going to change considerably. And I was still a people pleaser, right? So like, I don't want this to affect you, blah, blah, blah. So I think, you know, he was, he just kind of nodded and was like quiet for a few days about it. And then a few days later, he, we worked together, we own a business. And so he called me in his office and shut the door and he said, okay, what do you need? How does this work? Like, like he asked, like, you know, do we still have alcohol in the house? Do I have wine with dinner when we're at my parents? Like what, how does this work? What do you need me to do? And so he was really great about that. And I said, you know, I don't know, but if I can't get this on my own, I'm going to need to do more than what I'm doing. But, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't ask for a lot at the beginning. And I've since sort of established some rules that like, I won't buy alcohol you know, for having company over or whatever, mm-hmm. we still do entertain with alcohol in the home, but I don't buy it. I don't serve it. I keep my distance from it. And so there's that. But yeah, we just, we sort of had to develop some ground rules, but the truth of the matter was, I think we both knew too, that if we couldn't make this work, then, you know, the alternative was not staying together. And neither of us really wanted that. We never talked about it, but I couldn't not quit drinking, you yeah. know? And well, I think and that's, that brings me to kind of to my next question, because we've had a couple of listeners ask about that. And I wonder, and I think that it's really beautiful that you had the support that you did. And it wasn't that my husband was unsupportive, but he was more like, okay, you know, just, I think he didn't realize like what a big deal it was. And I didn't tell him like it was, I have to own that. I was just like, so I'm going to do this and it's a problem you know, like clean my hands, <laughs> just right. no big deal. Yeah. Cause I didn't, you know, of course there, I was putting his feelings before mine. I didn't want him to think anything bad of me, but it really was a big deal. And so I wonder, and can you answer this? Like for the people who maybe their spouse is, and who knows what the reasoning is, we can, that could be a whole nother episode, but that they're kind of like, I don't think you have a problem. Do you really uh, need to quit? Like, what do you think about that? I think that's really, really hard. Mm-hmm. I think it's really hard. I feel for people that are in that situation. I have some people in my life who feel that way too. I think they perhaps feel that I've overcorrected or that I'm, I'm maybe milking this, you know, mm-hmm. and that's hard for me. That's hard when you are, when you care what people think so desperately, you know, which fuels our addiction in a lot of cases. So it's a real catch 22. That's why meetings are so great. Right. And I'm not in a program myself, but I knew that if I couldn't get it with the sort of patchwork approach that I was using, that I was going to have to go and seek community and seek that external support. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really important, but I think there has to be like some, like maybe some counseling or something to education makes a big difference. And so I think we all know what the, I mean, we all had the stigma and stereotypes in our own heads. We had to overcome it, you know, to get sober. So it's only fair to understand that other people have those stigma and stereotypes too. And they think you're not an alcoholic. We spent so much time proving to the world we weren't, or Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. so they bought our story and then we're upset that they have a hard time shaking it when we sold it so hard. But you know, that aside, practically in terms of, well, what do you do and how do you address that? I think You either have to work together on it or you have to, you know, you have to really think about that. I don't want to say anyone, well, you should leave your marriage. I've had people write to me on my blog and say, your husband still drinks. He doesn't support you. You know, you should leave him. And I think, well, you know, that's pretty harsh. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's really fair, but I think all things have to be considered because the alternative, like in my mind, my husband could either have a sober wife or a dead wife. I knew that's where this was going. I mean, that's where it takes us. Mm -hmm. There's, there's no joking about it. It can be a long time till you die of your addiction and it's a pretty long, unpleasant end, but that's where it takes, especially women. That's where it takes us. So I kind of thought that like, you know, there is no scenario 
where this works out good with me still drinking. So Mm -hmm. the only hope is for me to get sober. And so what, that's the non-negotiable. That's the only thing that was non-negotiable. Absolutely. I love your answer. And you're right. There's no happy ending. And personally for me, there was no happy ending if I was going to continue drinking. And, you know, and and I just kind of want to tag on to what you said. And I agree with everything that you said. I think that if your spouse is not supportive in whatever way that looks like your, or your mm-hmm. partner. I think you can't do this by yourself. You have to find community. And that's what I did. I did. I found community in Alcoholics Anonymous and they were the ones I wanted, you know, when I had 60 days and when I had six months and, and then a year, like I really wanted him to like throw confetti when I walked in the door you know, <laughs> and, and like have, a, you know, take, let's go out to dinner to celebrate your one year. And he just was like, great job, honey you know, pass me the butter. And so I was devastated, but I think I had to realize for myself is that there's this whole thing about like, I want you to get it. I want you to understand. And I realized one day I I thought to myself, you know what? The only way he will really get it is if he is an addict himself. And I don't wish that on him. I really don't. And that's why I think the fellowship and recovery programs is so important. And it's emphasized so much because there's really something about, talking, I mean, what, cause my father died last month and I've had a couple of my friends reach out who have also lost their fathers. And there is, it, it, it's like, we're in this club together and other people who haven't been through it, they can be very nice and kind and they can absolutely be helpful. But there is something about someone else who has walked in your shoes yeah. and that's what you get in these recovery programs. And so I don't think you should leave your marriage, I don't. <laughs> but I think that I put a lot of pressure on my husband to be something that he couldn't And I had to realize that I just can't get that from him. And he's actually come a long way. We were in Target just the other day and we happened to be in the wine section, which I'd never venture down. It was just a coincidence that we were there and they have so many new kinds now that they didn't have when I was drinking, like little boxes of wine, like juice boxes. And so I was laughing at it and I was like, oh my God, what is this? And we were looking at it and I was laughing and we were walking away from the aisle. And I said, I'm so glad that wasn't out when I was still drinking because I would have had to try all of it. And I was, it was funny to me. And he stopped and he goes, I am so glad that you quit drinking. Right. And we just had like this Uh moment and like at Target, we were on date night. We go to Target on date night. No, it's very exciting. (laughs) But I stopped him and I gave him a big hug and a kiss. And I, and I looked at him right in the face and I said, it is so important that you say that to me. And thank you so much for saying that to me. Uh And I drink that in. I mean, you know, no pun intended, but, (laughs) but I think it's a tricky thing with our partners, especially if they are not in recovery and don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think it's fair to make them understand either. I don't think they have to be completely aware of everything we're going through in order to be supportive, Mm -hmm. but they can have gratitude too. Right. And that's like, that's the greatest thing of all. And I have been going away with like, for me, my community started with online groups and then I started going to meetups. Mm -hmm. And even anytime I travel, I would post in the online group I was on, okay, I'm going to this area. Does anyone in this group live in this area? And at first my husband was really freaked out. He's like, what are you doing? You're meeting strangers. Like from the internet, from the internet. He's like, we'd be visiting his parents in Palm Springs. And I'd post like, who lives in Palm Springs? I'll buy you coffee. And, and, but I said, listen, we're meeting for coffee. It's women. We're meeting for coffee. The details were posted offline, not online. And, you know, I feel okay about this. And it's always worked out amazing. And I've met through either the Bubble Hour or my blog or online support groups. I've met people. I met a beautiful woman in Rome when we were traveling in Italy. And we had the most memorable cappuccino together in this beautiful piazza. And so there I was in Rome. Like, you know, I was really worried about traveling Italy, wine country mm-hmm. as a sober person, but knowing that I was going to have that coffee that day with somebody in recovery just kept me going. Anyway, I've met people all over the world, everywhere I go. So it's I cool. find somebody. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. And then I've done meetups or recovery retreats. I know you had Don Nickel on if she recovers. I've been to some of her yoga retreats. And my husband's really supportive of that because yes, I'm going away for a week to a beach to do yoga, but he knows that I get to talk to women all week long about all the stuff he doesn't want to talk about. Like he knows I come back so full and happy and like the pressure's off on him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's sort of like, I heard someone in a recovery meeting say one time that his family complained that he, cause he would go to meetings every single night. And so he said that his response to them was, I used to drink every single night for hours. 
please let me go to a meeting for one hour every night. Yes. And it's kind of the same thing. You know, your spouse can, you know, bend on that a little bit if you go away for a weekend rather than you spending hours and hours and hours of drinking. Right. I mean, you're alone right in front of them. Otherwise, right. Right. <laughs> alone right in front of them. Yes. I have a question that I think is common for a lot of our listeners. And I know it's part of your story too, of having a high bottom. So what would you say to that person who has a high bottom? And, and when we say the term high bottom, I don't mean to use jargon. It's someone who doesn't have a rock, a quote unquote rock bottom story. So no DUIs, no arrests. Everyone pretty much thought that you had your shit together on the outside. So yeah. what do you say to these women who just can't seem to stay sober because they keep reminding themselves that their life isn't falling apart and they give into that one glass of wine, which as you know, just becomes a cycle and a pattern. Then they keep beating themselves up because they can't stay sober. What advice do you have for them? Well, the, I think it comes down to motivation, you know, so getting sober is about willingness. And that's why rock bottom comes in handy because when you've lost everything, it's pretty easy to be willing to get sober. I think people with a high bottom found the willingness by virtue of what they were afraid to lose. Mm-hmm. And so their willingness got them sober, but it's motivation that keeps us sober. And when you don't have that when you get far away from it, you know, it's hard to remember Mm -hmm. the sort of fear driven willingness that you had at the beginning. So I really like, I've made use of the program called smart recovery. They've got a lot of materials online, smartrecovery.org. And they, instead of having, you know, steps or disciplines, they just sort of have like guideposts. And so, you know, changing behavior and motivation is really sort of what you do after you've made the changes. You stay motivated to keep changing. So that means you have to build some change framework into your life. Mm -hmm. And uh, so for me, like my motivation comes from a really wellness-based idea. So, you know, I'm just headed into menopause and I'm at the age where my face is starting to look different and my body is looking different. And I'm watching my parents and my in-laws age and I'm seeing the impacts of health choices on aging. And so, you know, a lot of my motivation now comes from the kind of woman I want to be mm-hmm. as a role model for my sons, my daughters-in-law and my grandchildren, the kind of marriage I want, how I want to look and how I want to spend the rest of my years living. And so I don't, it's almost like a health motivation. You know, I don't want yeah. something that's going to up my chances of dementia. I don't want something that's going to vastly increase my chances of breast cancer. You know, we all use sunscreen because we don't want skin cancer. We don't smoke because we don't want lung cancer. Why the heck would we be marinating our bodies from the Mm. inside with something that's going to put you know, up your risks of cancer all along your digestive tract and in our beloved breasts, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so what I'm saying, you know, I don't mean to be like a health preacher. What I'm saying is that's my motivation. Yeah. And I cultivate that and I keep that alive versus in addition to, but it's, to me, it's bigger than the, I don't want to go back where I was. Mm-hmm. At first I was very motivated by, I don't want to go back to day one. I don't want to go back to going through detox, to being a slave to a bottle of wine. So I don't want to go back. But now at this point, you know, a little bit further down the road, I'm not just pushed from behind by regrets and negative motivation. I'm pulled ahead by the life I want. So I love that. that Yeah, that can come through meditation or yoga. It can come through like just self-care and looking good Mm -hmm. and knowing that, you know, that we just age so much better when we're not putting crap in our bodies and there aren't health benefits to alcohol. I don't care what any junk science news reports say. There are not. Those glass of wine a day, good for you studies were BS. They were made by alcoholics. No, that, well, yeah, <laughs> you know, they, or alcohol companies, you know, someone had a vested interest in spreading that message. Someone did message. have, a, yes, a paid yeah. interest, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, and I kind of spoke to the health benefits and you said, you know, it's hard to remember. I remember, I remember that first motivation. And for me, it was, And I've said this before, and I think it's worth repeating is that for me, it was a tipping point. It was because I have stood on that fence of, okay, my life's not falling apart. Is it really that bad? You know, I can just control it. I can keep trying to control. And so I had to get the scales had to tip to the point where I was more afraid 
of what my life would end up looking like a year, five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road than what it might look like if I got sober. Because I remember being so terrified. And I wrote this in my very first post I ever wrote about getting sober that I was terrified of my life without alcohol. Mm -hmm. I felt like it was such a part of me. And who was I without this? Would I ever be fun again sober? Like, would I, you know, because I was that girl. I was that girl that everybody loved to hang out with because I was so much fun. And every once in a while, I was listening to just the other night, I was, I play a lot of music in my kitchen. We have dance parties and I put Pandora's disco station on. And in my twenties, probably my early twenties, I used to go out with my girlfriends on Monday nights. We would go out to this one particular bar and club and by the beach in San Diego. And it was disco night and the song came on and I immediately thought of my two girlfriends, Carmen and Shelby and us hooping it up in our early twenties. And the addict in me is like, it takes me down. And I am like remembering, you know, doing like all the fun part of drinking the fun category and the addict in me still, and I'm 41 (laughs) still is like, remember that? That was so fun. Wouldn't it be fun to take a trip back there and go back to that bar? It's like, No, it's not. And that is so unrealistic. And the reason I tell that story is because like, I still have to be careful because nostalgia is a beast. And especially if you're an alcoholic and it's like, it will try to get any way to get back in. And you know, that fun part that I just described was like a very, very tiny, tiny percentage of my drinking career. It was like 0.03. The rest of it was you know, chugging that bottle of Chardonnay as my husband pulls in the driveway, right. you know, drinking tequila from a coffee cup. Right. Not fun. Yeah. Not fun at all. And if you even think through probably the night you're remembering, that was lots of fun. It probably ended up with someone holding your hair back while you puked, yeah. right? Or like, like the guy like rubbing his boner up on me, like on the dance floor. <laughs> like I remember that and like not having the balls to just be like, get the f- off me. Like, you know, and like things like that, like that was a lot. It's a whole nother podcast, but just, you know, it wasn't those moments of reckless abandon were very, very small. And it's amazing what our minds do and tries to pull us back in there. You know, it's funny that you used that image imagery to talk about it because I often tell people like to me, having one glass of wine or thinking of, you know, drinking in moderation now, I think, okay, would I stand naked in a phone booth with an old boyfriend, you know, (laughs) like, could anything good come of that? We could both say, well, we're just talking, we're not going to touch each other, but like, you just wouldn't put yourself in that. No. Like. It's funny to think of, but you kind of know, like, oh no, yeah, no matter what your best intentions are, like yeah. either something's going to happen, which you wouldn't want, or nothing's going to happen. And you would have freaking stood naked in a phone booth with your old boyfriend. <laughs> That's just dumb. Who does that? So I kind of think of it that way of like, you know, you just don't play with fire. But yeah, there's lots of ways to cultivate that motivation. And it's important to do that. It's crucial to do that. Yes. And you know, I like, I think programs, a lot of people are really resistant to getting involved in a program. And I was too. But I understand now why they work for a lot of people because it's one stop shopping, it's direction, it's community, it's behavior replacement, you know, Mm -hmm. going to a meeting instead of drinking, that's good behavior replacement. It's a whole package. And with the added benefit of other people who've had success with it to kind of help you along the way. And so if you can't get it on your own, if you're insistent, you know, I'm not going to do a program, but you're not getting sober on your own, guess what? You need a program. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Quit messing around. But even people that do do it successfully on their own will often go for the simply for the connection alone. The sharing. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's so, so wonderful. It's like, To me, I was six months sober before I talked to another person in recovery. I was at a conference for work and one of the speakers casually mentioned in his presentation that he was in recovery. And I happened to just be like, just have celebrated six months sober, but I'd never talked to another sober person in person. Mm -hmm. So I went up to him and like shyly, you know, told him that I was sober and he like total stranger came running across the room and gave me this big hug. And, and I was like, Oh, I get it. Yeah. 
and I, and all of a sudden I just was really motivated to start finding other sober people to connect with mm -hmm. and podcasts are good help. Like this, just hearing our voices is really helpful. I can guarantee there's someone listening to this who's thinking about getting sober and looking for what it sounds like, you know, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. whole, who am I going to be if I get sober? Well, you know, well, maybe I could be like this or maybe I'll be like that. What do these sober people sound like? And then, you know, like, okay, well, these two girls sound okay. Maybe if I go to a meeting, I'll find someone that's also okay. And then that just opens the floodgates to all the great things. I mean, recovery, the recovery community is amazing. It is amazing. I'm so honored to be a part of it. Yeah, me too. It's and I'm really powerful grateful people. that you're doing this, that you're, you know, combining it with your message and, and sharing it with people, what a big part of your life it is and what a big part of life change. I mean, even for people who don't need recovery from a substance, they will benefit greatly from the lessons of recovery because we all have things in our life that aren't serving us well, mm -hmm. that we're stuck on. Yes. Yes. And thank you for saying that. I think you know, there were many reasons I did it. And, and one of them wasn't so much for the obvious that it would help people who are in shoes like ours, but for people who might know someone who is, and it is hard to understand, like we were talking about, and just to give some insight of what it's like, because I believe it is so vastly misunderstood. And, you know, and that's why I love the documentary, The Anonymous People, and we'll link up to that too. It's, and by the way, everybody, the show notes are at yourkickasslife.com forward slash R6. And The Anonymous People, talks a lot about reforming recovery. And if we could tap into the 20 plus million people in the United States alone that are in long-term recovery, we could change a lot of people struggling with addiction and we could help them, I should say. So I'm a big fan of not keeping it a secret. And I have just one more question for you. And I would love for you to share with us one thing that you're really proud of and one thing that's been hard for you or that you're struggling with right now. Okay, I can do that. One thing I'm really proud of, I think one of the biggest changes for me has been understanding other people. Because if you're a perfectionist, you're pretty judgmental, you know, of yourself, but inherently of others too. And so I was always like trying to see how I was different than other people. And what I have, what I'm really proud of is that I've developed a capacity to see how we're the same. Mm -hmm. And I've, that's made me a much kinder person and a better listener and a better learner. And I think I was scared to become more vulnerable in that way because I thought it would make me weak. And I just feel like I'm a better human in general <laughs> Yeah, for opening my heart to looking for the things that we all share the same instead of the things that separate me. I don't need to be safe. I don't need to be above. And so that's, that also comes from, I don't need to compensate. It comes from developing some self-worth. And so I don't have to overcompensate for being less than, therefore I don't have to look for ways that I might be outperforming because I'm safe. Mm -hmm. So now let's find out how we're all the same. Yeah. And that was pretty scary. It is uh, scary. It's a dance. Like when you describing that, like I imagine in my head, like people doing like the shuffle, you know, <laughs> like the overcompensating, not overcompensating. Is this okay? Am I okay? Is this, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that AA has a kind of a funny term. They call it like the egomaniac with an inferiority complex. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that it's very much that. And it seems completely separate from addiction, but it's not. It fuels it. And someone once wished me a slow and enlightened recovery. And I thought that was beautiful, but I'm really now just learning what that means is that, you know, little by little, we improve. We're more loving and kind and accepting. And oh, I'm so grateful because it was not easy living that way. And I thought it was normal. Right. And it doesn't have to be. <laughs> yeah. So that's one thing I'm proud of. One thing I'm working on, I'm realizing that I have been a pretty angry person. So, you know, in recovery, I have learned to accept the fact that I'm anxious. I thought I was stressed. I thought stress was for strong people and anxiety was for weak people. So I would never say that I had anxiety. But I now am sort of accepting and trying, realizing that, okay, well, what I was doing wasn't working. So maybe if I call it what it is and deal with it appropriately, I can change it. And so I am. 
and anxiety is rooted in fear and fear and anger pretty, pretty closely linked. I like twin, twin sisters. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, there's thousands more, millions more like us. So mm-hmm. we're part of a big family of women. I think that must be a pattern. You know, I just, yeah. We think we're such individuals, you, are you, are you okay with your anger? Well, I, am I okay with it? I'm honest about it. And I think I was very ashamed Mm -hmm. to be angry. I think anger wasn't encouraged in my home growing up. I think it was sort of, especially not for little girls. Right. And like, you know, my mom, I think herself was taught that she would never be a grown up till she learned to control her anger. Mm -hmm. And I think that that message is a few degrees off course. Like we talked about earlier, anger, you know, my, I was taught to control my anger and have self-control and Mm self-discipline. And all I really became was a garbage compactor. Mm -hmm. Recovery for me has been about like just unpacking all that garbage and examining it and really processing it and getting rid of it. And so I, you know, I was ashamed that I was angry because I thought I had it under control because it was out of sight and Mm -hmm. I wasn't behaving angry, but it comes out in other ways, you know? And so I don't accept it. Like, I, I don't want to like li- accept it and live angry. I accept that it's real and it needs processing. And even as soon as you start to do that, you start to feel the relief. The same as when I say, okay, anxiety, this isn't stress. This is anxiety. Yeah. I go to my doctor, I go to my therapist and the relief starts to come. And I think, oh my God, why did I wait so long? Mm-hmm. So I think... I was like a little bit of a snap show, you know, by which I mean like quick tempered and I could be pretty sharp tongued. Mm -hmm. I could, I had a long fuse, but when I blew, oh my God, not pleasant. Mm -hmm. And that to me is a sign of someone with, with deep buried anger. Cause I was really good at ignoring it. Yeah. And then, but when something got to me, it was fireworks. That's embarrassing to me. So that's, I'm getting so much better about it, but I didn't realize like, gosh, on this retreat, I was just on. So another girl was there who I hadn't seen for a few years at an earlier retreat. And I said, you know, I think last time I saw you, I was really angry about a few things. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm those things I'm healing now. And she says, you were angry and I'm glad. And I kind of cringed, you know, Mm -hmm. because I thought, oh, I thought I was hiding it so well. (laughs) Who wants to be angry girl? You know? (laughs) Yeah. I know. Yeah. You don't want to be like labeled as that. I could see that, but well, well, thank you for sharing that. And I'm I'm just really glad and just grateful for your honesty. I think I should say, but anger is so interesting to me. Like my ears perked up when you said that, you know, I had no idea that that's what you were going to say. And (laughs) anger in the work that I do with women Typically, I have come to find out anger is just sort of like almost like a code word for something else that's underneath. And it's usually stems from some kind of hurt. I think that the more, like you said, something needs to be processed. And I would also add in the word getting curious about it and just like asking yourself the hard and just curious questions like, what am I really angry about? What's underneath? And there's always something under it. And it's usually not that we're just pissed off about something. Sometimes that's what it is, but it's, you're hurt about something. You haven't grieved about something. You need to forgive someone. You need to work on letting something go. And I think anger has a lot to do with resistance. And I also wanted to point out one more thing that you said too. I think this might be helpful for people is that, you know, what you were talking about is like, you know, you take it and take it and take it. And then (laughs) the lid blows off. That's, you know, and also in the work that I do is we talk a lot about what do you do to offload your hurt? And for alcoholics, typically we numb it. Like that's what we do. We are hurting inside about anything and everything in our life. And we don't want to feel it or process it or talk about it or deal with it. And we drink. And then when we don't drink anymore, (laughs) we have other ways of offloading hurt and I am the same as you. And it's like, I will, there's a couple different things. It's called, Brene Brown calls it chandeliering, or it's also called stockpiling, which is when you never let it out. And that's like depression and anxiety and insomnia come in. But I think that it's kind of like the more, you know, and I say all that just because just to tell you, Jean, and everybody listening that you're normal and that we all do things to offload hurt and anger is a huge, huge 
mechanism that we do that. So yeah. you're one of us. Welcome. Yeah, exactly. And doesn't it make sense then why that whole whack-a-mole thing, like, well, I stopped drinking, but now my eating disorders flared up right. or, okay, now I've got that under control, but I've got 900 pairs of boots in my closet because <laughs> I can't get off Amazon. And so if that's happening, you know, you're just, you're swapping numbing mechanisms right. and you're not actually dealing with it. Yeah. And recovery is really about dealing it. With that's things. What, Sobriety that's what is, I always say there's a big difference between getting sober and recovery because yeah. any, I think anybody can quit drinking, but like, are you actually looking at all the shit that is going on in your life? Cause drinking is just the symptom. And, you know, like you said, we move on to shopping or doing whatever. And, and I mean, oh my gosh, you know, that'd be a whole nother episode. But you know, for me, it's like, I'm a duaholic and, you know, work is another one. And, so it's about sitting in that discomfort. Ugh, don't want to. Don't want to. I had a guest on Rachel Maddox. She was on a few weeks ago and we were talking about trauma and she was talking about trauma resolution, about slowing down your brain. And like the way she was describing it, I was like, nope. Not doing it. <laughs> don't want to do that. <laughs> that sounds weird. So to me, that's a big red flag of like, okay, Andrea, that's where you're going. That's what you need to do. I'm actually going to work with her. But anyway, I we're, we're at time now and I am so incredibly grateful for this conversation and for getting to finally talk to you in person. And I know that this has been so helpful to so many women out there and probably men too. Thank you all for tuning in. Again, the show notes are at yourkickasslife.com forward slash R6. We will have lots of links in those show notes to Jean's blog and the retreat that you are going to be at. And I'm going to do everything that or actually it's a conference that I'm going to try to do everything to get there at. And thank you so much for being here. Oh, my, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. I love your work and I'm just honored to be in this little recovery sphere with you. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, everybody. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye.